Hello, everyone. For those of you joining us in person and for those of you watching online out in the gray room, so glad that you could join us here today. My name is Josh. I'm Jenna. And we just have a few announcements for you before we continue on in the service. Um, and you can find more information about all of these announcements um, by scanning the QR code. If you're here in the blue seats, that's right on your armrest. You can just scan that there, or else there's a little handout that we have in the lobby or maybe on your seat. If you're online, look for that link in the chat. And if you are new here or relatively new here, we'd like to invite you to a special event next Sunday. After the second service, we'll be holding a welcome party to welcome you to the church and give you an opportunity to get to know the church a little bit and for us to get to know you. And we'd love to see you there. You can sign up online or come see us in the lobby after the service. Yeah, and there's gonna be awesome food there. So come on, you gotta come. Um, and we don't just have the welcome party. We've got another party at the end of this month. It's called the Night of Worship. And let's give it up for that. Come on. Woo. So um, here at Fairfax, we like to get together on some Wednesday nights throughout the year for Night of Worship to just praise and give glory to God for who he is and what he's done. And it's a party around this place. And so we encourage you to come out for that, bring a friend with you. You can learn more um, about that on our website or through the scan code as well. And then we also have groups coming up this fall and we are looking for new group leaders. And if you have a passion for Jesus and you have a, just a desire to serve others um, in leadership and encouraging people and discipling others, we would love to just talk with you about what it looks like to be a leader here at Fairfax with one of our groups. And so you come talk to me, you can go online to our groups page. Um, you can also scan the code as well to, to sign up and just let's have a conversation about you know what that could look like. And if you are familiar with our resource center, you know the awesome work that they do in our community, that we do in our community as a church through our resource center. And one of the things that we do is we deliver boxes of food to Afghan families who have recently resettled in this area. And it's an amazing way to bless our community. Um, that happens on the first Saturday of every month. So uh, next Saturday is the first Saturday of August, in case you didn't have that in your head already. Um, so next Saturday is one of the opportunities to do that, but also upcoming in the in the coming months uh, that's available to sign up for. It's a great thing to do with people from your small group or your family. They send um, the delivery drivers out in teams of two to go and take those boxes of food to the Afghan families in our community. And lastly, Fairfax, we just wanna say thank you to all of you who give generously to this place. Um, we get to, part, get to be a part of what God is doing in and through this community. And it's helped made possible by your generosity. So thank you so much. And my wife and I strive to be a part of that. We're not always perfect, but each year we try to grow in the grace of giving. And as we do, we, we experience a deeper trust in God, more dependence on Him. And we get to experience just a faithfulness um, in our lives that we hadn't before. And so encourage you to check that out. There's many ways that you can get involved. You can um, give through our online, the scan code, the boxes in the back. Um, and you can also text the number behind me as well. And that's all we've got for you, um, Fairfax. We're so glad to have you here for us on this Sunday. We are continuing our series in 1 John, uh, but before Pastor Rod comes up, just take a look at this video.
Good morning, church. Um, good morning to uh, those of us, uh, those of you who are part of our online community. It's great to have you with us today, as well as those sitting here in the blue seats. I've been gone for a couple weeks uh, with some family time. Uh, the July and August is some time for us to spend some special time with the family, and uh, so I've uh, been gone for a couple of weeks. And uh, we've continued this series, First John. And the first week I was gone, Josh Falk uh, preached and dealt with the first part of chapter two and just what it means to be a community of love. And uh, then last week, Jess Eifluck dealt with that little passage about love of the world and uh, the distortion that that is on love. And I just thought that both of those passages and both of those messages were just absolutely outstanding. And would you just show your appreciation for both Jess and Josh for that. We're, we're so, um, we are so blessed to have um, so many young communicators that are a part of this staff. And I don't know if you've been a part of other congregations or not, but that, that is not always the case. And um, it is here and we don't take that for granted. And it's one of the greatest joys really for me as the senior pastor is seeing uh, this next generation of leadership coming up and um, it's kind of what we are focused on. When I, when I came uh, all these years ago, I was one of those next generation leaders and the church kind of spoke into my life and gave me an opportunity to lead and uh, it's just a joy to be able to do that now at this season in my ministry. So we're in week four of this series on 1 John that's called Light and Love. It's an eight-week series in the book of 1 John. And uh, every week, just a little bit of context, that 1 John was written by the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles, one of the 12. And it was written fairly early. It was written about 85, 95 AD, probably from the city of Ephesus. It was written to a number of house churches that had formed um, in Ephesus and around Ephesus. And it was a letter that was written basically to warn them about the increasing threat of false teachers that had been in the church and had gone out from the church and were infiltrating the church and to help them understand the true character of God. And John's main theme that we just keep coming back to over and over again is that God is both light, truth, and love. And that you, when you understand the character of God, you realize both of those. In fact, according to John, love is the product of light. That love is the product of of truth, that it's impossible to love the way that God loves if your view of God and God's character is distorted in some way. That without truth, we will love the wrong things and we will love in the wrong way. I think Jess dealt with that issue very, very well last week. In other words, love without truth is not really love, and truth without love is not really true. That truth and love are inextricably connected. That, that's what John just keeps coming back to in this little letter, that truth and love are just absolutely inextricably connected. And John says that in Jesus, both God's light, his truth, and his love are on full display. Now today we're looking at the concluding passages of chapter 2. We spent the most time 
in chapter 2 that we'll spend in any of the chapters, but there's just so much there. And this is a section that's filled with uh, some pretty harsh-sounding words and uh, phrases that uh, oftentimes are, I think, misunderstood and misused and abused and that actually take, take us sometimes in a direction that is far afield from where John was wanting to take this when he used those terms. This is how the section begins. Verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them actually belonged to us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. And I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, a little bit of context uh, in that passage as we try to unpack that. First of all, the us that John is talking about is the church. In fact, it's a number of churches that he's writing to. And the, those who went out from us were a group of people who were in the church, who claimed to be Christians, but they rejected the idea that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he's the Son of God. And so they left the church. And John refers to these people as antichrists, as liars. Now, usually when we think about antichrist and whether you've grown up in a church where they dealt with this subject a lot or you grew up in a church where they never dealt with this subject or you've just heard it used and you never, you weren't in a church growing up, you haven't been a part of a church, it's maybe your first time to connect and you just kind of have heard the word used somehow in culture, especially usually when bad things happen in the world that all of a sudden this kind of language starts to come up. Usually when we think about Antichrist, we think about a singular figure that reveals himself at the end of the age and wreaks all kind of havoc on the world. And there was certainly some of that thinking that was prevalent in the first century church that John is writing to. But John challenges that view when he says that there are many antichrists. We're not talking here, at least. We're not talking about some singular figure that's going to come at the end of time. There are many antichrists. And we're not waiting for them to come. Like, they're already here. They're, they're in our midst. They're part of our church. Like, that's what we're talking about. That's the context. Now, what's interesting is that, according to John, the difference between a follower of Jesus, a Christian, and the ones he refers to as antichrist, as liars, harsh language, has nothing to do with their behavior. It's not that these antichrists have done horrible things or that their lives are any messier than anyone else's life. The difference is what they believe. They reject the idea, the core idea, that Jesus is the Christ. They reject the idea that Jesus is is the son of God. They see Jesus as a, a good man who taught some really good things and lived a good life and, 
and, and showed compassion and love and all of that, but he's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. He's not the Son of God. Nothing more than really just a really, really good teacher. And it's not that the other people in the church were without fault that, Jesus, uh, that, uh, that John is talking about. It's not that they didn't have messy lives or never did things that were displeasing to God or that hurt God or that hurt other people. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, they had fully embraced the idea that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world. And that through his death on the cross, that he has saved them. At its core, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. At its core, that's what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes we hang out at church and we deal with all kinds of Bible studies and sermons and all that. And, and sometimes it's easy in the midst of all that to maybe lose track of just like, what, what is at the core? Like, how do I know if I really am? I have conversations. I continue to have conversations with folks that say, I love, I love what's going on. I love this place. I love, I love the message. I love all that. I'm just not really sure whether I'm there yet. And it's not that they don't want to be there. It's that they're not sure sometimes just like what there is. Like, what does it mean to be there? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? At its core, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's embracing the truth that Jesus is the Christ. It's embracing the truth that you need to be saved, that you need to be rescued, and that Jesus is the rescuer, that Jesus is the savior. And if you reject that truth, you may be a really good person, you may be a really, really moral person, but according to John, you are not a follower of Christ. Now, all of this seems really basic, right? Like Christianity 101, basic Christian stuff. And obviously the people John is writing to here, they've heard this message before. That's why they're in the church. That's why they're a part of this community. They, they had embraced Jesus as Savior. They had embraced Jesus as the Christ. So why is John hitting it so hard? And why is he using such strong language to drive that point home? Well, the reason is because a huge problem had arisen in the church that was driven by, by what has come to be known as Gnosticism. It wasn't known as Gnosticism then, but it's come to be known as Gnosticism. Now, we don't know for sure like all the spiritual roots of Gnosticism, and it was fairly complex, but it was probably some mixture of Eastern religions and Greco-Roman religions. Most Eastern religions taught that matter wasn't real, that it was just an illusion, that you need to move beyond the material in order to break free from that, that that's what it meant to be spiritual. And the Greco-Roman religions just saw matter as something that was inherently bad, something you need to move beyond. But whatever the influences were, the Gnostics' belief was that God could not have come to earth in the form of a flesh and bones human being, that God would never do that, that God would never take on flesh, that he would never take on matter, that God is beyond matter. In fact, they taught that Christ was a divine being that descended on Jesus at his baptism and left 
just before Jesus' crucifixion. Because God couldn't possibly die. God couldn't possibly suffer. God couldn't possibly experience pain. Like what kind of God suffers? What kind of God lowers himself to enter into this broken world? What kind of God dies? Like that's no God. Like what kind of God does that? And John says, that's just a lie. He says that that's the spirit, he calls it the spirit of Antichrist. Look at what he says in chapter four. He's he's kind of circling around to this same theme again. He says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So what John is saying is that if you miss the idea that God took on flesh, if you miss the idea of the incarnation, if you miss the idea that God entered into the brokenness of this world and suffered and died to make us whole again, then you miss the whole message of the gospel. Because the doctrine of the incarnation is that we are so broken that God didn't just need to fix us. He didn't just need to tweak us. He didn't just need to make us a little bit better than what we were, but that God needed to save us. He needed to rescue us. He needed to restore us. The gospel is that no matter how hard we try, we will never be able to get up to God. And so God came down to us. The spirit of Antichrist isn't as much about being opposed to Christ as it is about not needing Christ. It's about thinking that if you lead a good enough life and you do enough spiritual things that somehow, some way you can earn your own salvation. It's about thinking, I've got this. I can do this. I can handle this. I can navigate this. And John says, no, you can't. In fact, he says in verses 23 and following this, no one who denies the son has the father. And whoever acknowledges the son has the father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, one of the themes... And you see this throughout the book of 1 John. One of the themes that John just keeps coming back to in this letter is this contrast between truth and lies, real and counterfeit. And John says that those who do not embrace Jesus as the Christ, he says they're counterfeit. He says that they are liars. And it's not just that they're not being honest with people, that they're not being honest with themselves. Now, That seems incredibly harsh, right? Harsh language. But the reason John is saying this is because John sees the gospel 
not just as another belief system set alongside other belief systems. And so you have this belief system and this belief system and this belief system. And you can kind of decide which belief system that you want to follow. That he sees the gospel as the, the meta-truth that is, is behind all truth. The meta-story that is behind all stories. And you see that in the opening verses of the Gospel of John, where he writes this about this meta story. You see it as he starts out his Gospel. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things have been made. This is the meta story John is saying. That through him all things have been made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not understood it. A lot of you know uh, the name J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, he's uh, probably most well-known for, for writing uh, The Lord of the Rings and uh, a number of other great novels, great books that he wrote. Um, but one of the little essays that he wrote that isn't as well-known is a little essay called On Fairy Tales. And he kind of deals with this topic in some way. In the essay, Tolkien says that the gospel is the catastrophe behind all stories. The catastrophe behind all stories. Now, I'm pretty sure it's a word he just made up and it wasn't into existence. I did a little research on it and found out that he's the one that coined the term and then it became like a term and now you can go to the dictionary and it actually has a definition of catastrophe. But I think Tolkien was the one that just kind of coined it and made it up. It's a combination of the Greek prefix eu, E-U, meaning good, and the word catastrophe, meaning something horrifically, horrifically bad. So in a story, the catastrophe is that sudden turn of events in the story, which ensures that the protagonist in the story doesn't meet the terrible impending doom that seems so inevitable at that point in the story. A catastrophe is a story where good comes out of evil, a story where life comes out of death, a story where triumph comes out of defeat. It's the story of the gospel. And Tolkien says that all the stories that we tell, all the stories that we write, all the novels that we write, all the movies now that we see and watch that all of them are basically just an echo of the gospel story. That's why we see a catastrophe embedded in almost every novel that we read or every movie that we watch. In Lord of the Rings, just when victory seems assured for the evil Sauron, the ring, which would give him almost unlimited power, is destroyed. And good triumphs over evil. In Beauty and the Beast, the beauty kisses the beast and the beast is transformed. 
In Sleeping Beauty, death is not the end of the story. In The Lion King, when the true king is in charge, everything is in harmony. In Shawshank Redemption, there is life beyond the prison walls. And the list just goes on and on and on. And even though we know as we watch those, as we see those, as we read those, we know that those are just made up stories. There is something deep inside of us that says there is something real here. There is something true here. It's kind of like um, the, the medicine that they give to kids that, you know, kids hate to take their medicine. And so years ago they figured that out. And so they started making medicine taste like candy so that kids would take their medicine and like it. And then they found out that adults don't like medicine either. And they don't like vitamins either. They don't like supplements either. And so they started making all of those taste like candy. And so you can take all of those things. You can actually gain weight taking vitamins. Just, just the sugary, gummy, bare things that they are kind of turned into. And the idea, of course, is that as you chew it, as you eat it for a kid, their mind's kind of tricked. And they think, oh, this is, this is candy. This isn't medicine, this is candy. But the body isn't tricked. The body knows it's not candy. The body knows that it's medicine. The body knows the truth and it responds appropriately. And in some ways, that's really what Tolkien is talking about here. He's talking about that even though we know these stories that we watch, these movies that we see, we've talked about this so often, we've done at the movie series and all of that, we know they're just made up. There's something deep inside of us that says there is something behind them that is true. There is a good that eventually triumphs over evil. There is a love that can make us beautiful. Death is not the end of the story. There is something more. There is one true king. And when the king is in charge of everything, everything is in harmony and made whole. There is life beyond the prison walls. A life where we are not controlled by the things that would enslave us. And what Tolkien is saying is that the gospel is not just another made-up story, another myth pointing to some deeper reality like all of the movies and all of the stories that we read, that the gospel is the story that is behind all of the stories. The gospel is the reality behind the myths. The reality to which all myths point came down into the timeline of history in the incarnation. He calls the incarnation of Christ the eucatastrophe of human history. And he calls the resurrection the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. And what John is saying, and the reason he's using this language of truth and lies and kind of setting those in juxtaposition to each other is what John is saying is that when we reject the gospel story, when we reject that Jesus is the Christ, that we're, we're actually lying to ourselves. We're denying that which we know at some level down deep in our soul, even when our mind can't comprehend it, even when we can't connect all the dots, 
even when we're not sure we can embrace it intellectually, that somewhere down deep inside our soul knows that it's true. We're denying the story that is the reality behind all the other stories that constantly stir our soul and cause us to go back and read more and watch more and be captivated by more because the reality behind the made-up story touches something deep within us. John closes this section by reminding us that God has given us a resource to actually see the truth and help us understand the truth and see the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 27 again. As for you, the anointing, the anointing, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, when John talks about the anointing, he's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to reject the lies and walk in the truth. It's the Holy Spirit that points us to the one true story that is behind all the other stories. And the Holy Spirit is not just at work in the lives of Christians. That's one of the things that we sometimes by default have this very limiting view of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is only at work in those who are Christians. But the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of every single person on the face of the planet. In fact, the Bible says we can't even come to Jesus unless we are drawn by the Spirit. That all of us who have become followers of Jesus, we are followers of Jesus because the Spirit drew us. And the Spirit is at work in every person's life. Sometimes we listen to the Spirit. Sometimes we are open to the Spirit. Sometimes we, we turn off the Spirit. But the Spirit is at work. Whether you've crossed that line, whether you've made that decision, the people that you know, the people that you're praying for, the people in the other parts of the world, the people that have never heard the gospel, the Spirit of Christ is at work calling and wooing even beyond just our cognitive recognition. And the Holy Spirit helps us to deal with the lies in our life. Now the reality is that sometimes the lies that we tell ourselves are not just lies about who Jesus is but they're lies that we tell ourselves about who we are. We embrace things about ourselves that are not true. Sometimes we embrace things about ourselves that are not true because of something that we have done in our past that has hurt someone else. Sometimes we embrace lies about ourselves because of something that someone else has done that has hurt us, or maybe it's something else. 
It causes us to tell ourselves lies like, I'm not worthy, or I'll never change, or I'm not enough, or I don't measure up, or I'm nothing more than the totality of my failures, or I will forever be defined by the worst thing that I've ever done. And the lies just go on and on and on. And the Holy Spirit is there to help us to reject those lies and other lies and to walk in the truth of who we are in reality in Christ. Today I want to give you an opportunity um, while we sing, we're going to sing in a minute and... uh, and while we're singing, I want to give you an opportunity, if you feel led, to make your way to the cross. We go to the cross for all different kinds of reasons. We use these two crosses in our service and place notes upon the cross. And oftentimes it's prayer requests that people will pray for. But today, I, I want to just give you the opportunity, while we're singing, to be able to make your way to the cross. And whatever it is that you need to surrender whether it's a lie that you need to lay down, whether it's a truth that you need to take up, whether it's something else that's going on you just need to give to God, you just need to surrender in some way to God. I just want to give you time as we're worshiping just to surrender whatever that is to God. And sometimes it's good just to to move and to and to take a physical action of just saying, I want to lay this down. And some of you maybe have been hanging on to some lies that you've been telling yourself for a long time. And the Holy Spirit is saying, you've got to lay that down. You've got to give that lie to me. Like, that's not true. That's not true. So surrender that to me. Give give that to me. Turn that over to me. Let me take that lie. Let Let the light, the truth of Jesus take that lie. And maybe today is just the day that God is saying, you know, maybe you've you've done that in your mind, but something concrete about just taking a step, placing something on the cross. And so as we're saying, just feel free, whatever it is that you want to place there, whatever it is that you want to surrender, whatever it is that you want to say, just to feel free to do that. And before we do that, I want to close by us doing something that we don't typically do around here, but to pray a prayer of confession in unison together sometimes before we can surrender something to God we need to confess something to God so I want to give you an opportunity to do that as we do this unison confession of prayer together but even before we do that I want to give you a moment just in silence just the silence of your own heart 
that maybe there's something specific that you want to confess to the Lord and give to him. And after just a moment, then I'll lead us together as we in unison pray this prayer of confession. So just take a moment with the Lord. Let's pray this in unison together. Almighty and merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done and there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy on us and grant, O most merciful Father, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and joyful life. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. God, you hear our prayers. You hear the silent prayers that we breathe to you you hear the prayer of confession that we offer to you as a congregation. And Lord, you know the lies that we struggle with and you know the things that we perhaps need to surrender, whatever that is. The things that we hold on to that we don't need to hold on to, that we just need to give to you. The things that we carry on our shoulders that you say, give that to me. Let me have that. Whether it's a fear, whether it's pride, whether it's arrogance, whether it's something that we're overwhelmed by, just give that to me, you say. And so, Lord, in this moment, as we worship you, we pray that this is just a time of surrender for all of us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.